I started in e-com as an agency. So I actually still operate an agency for about three years now. I started at the end of 2017. And since then, I've been able to generate over 10 million in sales for my clients just using Facebook ads for their Shopify stores. Hi guys, this is Ariel Ben Solomon back with another podcast. And this week we are really pleased to have Noah Brewer with us. So if you guys haven't heard about him, you guys got to check out his YouTube channel. He is dropping a lot of value bombs on his channel, especially about Facebook ads and some other takes that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So you can check below. We're going to have the links to his channels down below. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel and push a like. And so, Noah, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. So I started in e-com as an agency. So I actually still operate an agency for about three years now. I started at the end of 2017. And since then, I've been able to generate over 10 million in sales for my clients just using Facebook ads for their Shopify stores. You know, obviously a little bit of a different approach than other people in the space, just because I'm looking at things from an agency's perspective, as opposed to doing it for myself, which I think has a lot of benefits with Facebook ads, because most people are only seeing, you know, two or three accounts, whereas I've been seeing 50 to 100 accounts for the last two to three years. Wow. So I started my YouTube channel to basically share the experiences that I've had across this many different accounts, because obviously I have a lot of unique perspectives. It's a lot of accounts, a lot of ad spend, a lot of successes, a lot of failure. And yeah, that's why I'm kind of put my face on the company and I want to get out here and share it with everybody. I mean, we haven't interviewed anyone that's got an agency. So you're very specialized in your knowledge. Whereas, you know, the drop shippers that we talk to or other gurus, they're focusing on the whole cycle so they're a bit diverse. So it gets kind of diluted. You know, they're dealing with making Shopify stores. They're dealing with product research. Right. Doing so many different things. That, but you're always better when you're focusing on one thing. So that's really interesting. I've seen a theme in your videos like in the last year. You're very much talking about your new pioneer strategy. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. And then contrast that with kind of the copy-paste strategy is what you call it. And you kind of describe how they both work. I think most people that are listening to this, especially beginners, are have learned about the, the copy-paste strategy. The pioneer strategy yeah. is kind of your, your new take on it. So why don't you say a couple words about that? Yeah. So when I first started, I was doing the same thing as anybody else back, you know, three years ago, end of 2017, most of 2018, where I was just finding products that were working good in the marketplace and just literally copying and pasting them you know, stealing the video, the ad copy, the descriptions, all that. And the reason I decided to actually try the Pioneer Method is because I had an idea. What if the guys that I was copying, you know, like, who are they copying? There has to be an originator of who they're copying, right? Because the copycat method does not work if there is nobody to copy. So somebody out there, which I figured this out, was testing products that they had no idea if they were already working or not. Like somebody was taking that risk and then people like me would just copy them. Uh, so I figured, you know, by the time I tried this pioneer method, which is trying a product without really knowing how good it does at all, I already had maybe 
10 to 15 winning products under my belt, just clients that ended up being successful. And I had a pretty good eye for which products would work and which wouldn't. So I decided to just give it a shot. And that was actually the moment that my life changed, my clients' lives changed, because I discovered this like new method that did not rely on somebody else to find a winner. Like I was able to find the product myself, test it myself, you know, come up with the creatives, come up with the description all from the start. And most of the time ended up doing really, really well, especially in those early stages when I first started doing it. Yeah, that's interesting. And you talk about how the ROAS is often larger with this untapped products that you're talking about. You find your own winners instead of finding other people's winners is that the ROAS tends to be higher. And then when you scale it, it's, it scales better. Yeah, I would say so. Like with the copycat method, I was still seeing success. I was still able to do, I believe, one and a half million dollars with that method in my first year. But what was really frustrating me was I was like very rarely seeing over three ROAS. It was usually hovering between two and three, which even to this day with the copycat method, that's still what you see. You don't really see higher than that with a true copycat method. So it's one thing that it really excited me about the Pioneer Method was when I first tested it, like literally the very first product that I tested that wasn't a copycat winner, I ended up getting a five ROAS on, which was insane to me because I've never seen a five ROAS before that point. And this was like a brand new pixel, brand new store, brand new product. Like I literally just found the product in AliExpress. Everything was new. So it really just blew my mind. And, you know, obviously we were able to scale these products to 100K, 200K, 500K, maintaining that three and up ROAS, which I was never able to do before the Pioneer Method. Well, but it's a little bit risky, no? Because, I mean, when you go Pioneer, I mean, it could be a dud. But I mean, you have an eye for what you're looking for. But I mean, for someone that's out there that's not so much experienced as you. Experience definitely has something to do with it. Like, I don't, recommend that everybody goes out there and just starts testing random products. That's why, you know, with my agency, we actually provide products because I choose them all out myself just based on my experience. So what I would recommend people actually doing is getting familiar with the market, you know, like watch the Facebook ads that you see on your feed, watch what other people are doing. And instead of stealing their exact product and everything that goes with it, try to look for patterns, right? Like one example of this is when I look for products, I am basing it on my previous experience of what products work and what products don't work. If you can use the copycat method, you're already figuring out which products are working. So all that you need to do from here is try to find products that aren't working yet that are similar to products that are working now. And that's essentially all that I do is I look for patterns. And if I see a new product that meets my certifications, it matches the types of products that have done well in the past, then I'll test it. So it could work for even old products that are not recent. I mean, it could be something that was maybe viral a year ago, two years ago. One example of that is you can pull inspiration from previous winners, of course. Like a while ago, I had a winner that was a bicycle helmet with goggles that came down. And that was a pretty good product. It still is a pretty good product. And we're still finding winners with that. 
But I thought, you know, like if a helmet with a visor would do well, then maybe other types of helmets would do well as well. So I started looking into other types of helmets and I've probably had three or four different types of helmets end up being winners just based on that one original idea that I had. There was one helmet, it was a bike helmet with LEDs on them. I'm sure that you've seen that. I've probably done a few hundred K with those across a few different clients. I got into skiing helmets, like I did bicycle helmets. So I tested out skiing helmets. You know, this is just one example of how you can use what's already out there to find new pioneer products. I see. And then how would you say to people when they're talking about, you know, taking these products and testing them in terms of CBO or going the old method with the ad sets or ABO, what would you say in terms of mix and match or still go with the old way? I would still recommend the old way. I am experimenting with testing using CBOs and a lot of different methods use CBOs later on and some of them use them early and I'm still kind of in between which is better to do. We have a really extensive testing process when it comes to formulating a new method in the agency and I don't feel like our CBO method is to a point where I should share it publicly yet, but I will say that it's working very, very well. I just don't want to say what it is yet, obviously, because it's not like 100% ready. You know, I like to prove things out multiple, multiple times before releasing them. So right now, I would recommend doing ABOs, my original method of seven ad sets, seven interests worldwide, you know, five bucks a day each ad set is still working perfectly. I see that's interesting. Because some people start saying, and especially, you know, the Facebook advisors, like $5 is too low. But of course, they want you to spend more. But you need, you know, $20 a day minimum or $40 a day. But uh, yes, $5 still works. Another interesting thing about you is that uh, while you're unique in terms of the dropshipping and income businesses is that you're talking a lot about high ticket items. And a lot of people out there are not looking at the margins of the products they're selling. They're selling these cheap products for $25. And then with Facebook ads and products and shipping, there's like no margin left in, or no margins. So it was interesting that you're talking about selling products. I don't know. I think you said something like $50 to $150 look for where you have yep. that higher perceived value. I would attribute some of the reason for the higher res that I see to that is mainly we don't sell any products that are less than $40. Like we will stoop to the $40 level, but nothing really less than that. When I was doing the copycat method, I dealt with a lot of low ticket products, you know, like 15 to $25 products and they do work. But you know, my skill set and my vision was higher ROAS, higher return, less customers, better quality products, you know, products that actually mean something like it's not just like a little knickknack. You know, one example would be I don't know, a mini drill sharpener. It's like a real product that has a real solution. I mean, it, it provides a real solution to handymen, right? And that product done really well for me multiple times as well. So when you're doing these $20 products, it's kind of hard to solve a real problem. So some people look at higher ticket products as intimidating, but they're not really that intimidating. You just have to find one that solves a big enough problem to like justify that $50 price tag. You don't find a problem going the high ticket in terms of getting the sales at all. Like, because you're going higher, then maybe you're going to find less buyers, but that's good because then you have less of the back end work. I've seen cost per purchases that are $50, but still have a 3.5 to 4 ROAS. You know, like 
$150, $200 products still sell just as well. Yes, you get a lot less customers, but you don't really need that many customers when you're selling a $100 product. That's interesting. Because a lot of people here are probably dealing with, you know, if you get sold those slow ticket items, you're going to get like, you know, give it 30, 50 orders a day and it's just a headache and then your profits aren't there. So yeah, what you're saying, it makes sense. Yeah. Low ticket definitely works. Like there's no doubt in the world that it works. I've made it work numerous times. It's just a preference of mine to do higher ticket products and, you know, mix that with the pioneer method. I have complete control over what I test. So if I'm choosing out my own products anyways and not copying from anybody, I can make my own rules, right? <laughs> uh, when would you say a product's a winner? What's your definition of it? It's getting a few, like when it's testing, you're getting a few sales in the first couple of days. How do you judge that? I would say that usually what I've seen is if a product is running for a week and a half, two weeks, and it's remaining consistent and profitable throughout that time, that would be a good time to consider it, you know, a winning product. Because, you know, sometimes you do get those products that, you know, it'll have like a four or five ROAS in the first couple of days. And then after a while, it'll just simmer out. And it could be your ad strategy. It could be, you know, the product. Maybe you just got lucky in the beginning and hit the right people once and that was it. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that that happens. But if you're like a week and a half, two weeks and things are consistent and looking good, then you're probably sitting on some gold. Oh, that's a good point. A lot of people aren't talking about waiting that long with consistency because they start to scale earlier. But the problem there is it could be like not so good uh, of a product, actually. Sometimes it can still get sales, but it's not scalable. And, you know, we also work as an agency. So it's not only us that we need to think about. You know, like we have clients that have varying budgets. They have varying experience levels. So we can't just like skyrocket a product for somebody that has no idea what they're doing. So we kind of play by ear and, you know, we don't want to run up a product that's not a winner on somebody that's inexperienced, you know. Maybe give an example of a client that you had that you took them when they were ahead, like maybe they're doing like thousand a day or something and you came in and you scaled it. You know, let's talk about your examples. I think that would be helpful. Okay. I have a ton of case studies on my YouTube that actually go super in depth. Like I don't hide anything with the methods that I actually try to share as much as possible without, you know, giving away the client's information or store yeah. product. But I mean, the best example I would say is the, our most recent big, big success with a client was a store that he actually came to us that had no sales, no winner. I mean, we were actually using our agency service to just test products for him I think he went two and a half months or so without a winner using our service. He popped a winner, did really, really well in the beginning, but it wasn't scaling so good with our original method. So we were kind of messing around with a newer method and that ended up working really, really well. And we were able to take him to 10K a day over the Black Friday weekend. We were able to maintain that. I'm not exactly sure where he is right now, but I know he's not doing terribly. He's probably made about 80 to 90K in profit so far working with my agency. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, and by the way, that scale was actually using our new CBO method. So I don't believe we did many ABOs with him at all. But like I said, I don't talk too much about that method. If you want to know more in depth what we did, you can go on my YouTube and watch the case study that I made. I believe I made it like a month ago or so. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, you go deep, you share your strategies. Because a lot of people, they're not talking all 
all the details that you're talking about because they're trying to save some of that for you know not to release it. But you you're basically releasing all your pretty transparently. I want to share my perspective and and share what I see because it's a lot of power, you know, like me being on the top and then I have my manager and then I think I have like 11 or 12 ad buyers right now that work with these clients. You know, we manage probably around a hundred ad accounts and that is a lot of power in terms of like learning Facebook ads and what they mean and, you know, what are the best things to do? You know, we're constantly testing different methods and, you know, sometimes we mess up, but sometimes we hit a real banger. And when we do, I want to share it. What are some trends that you're noticing? Because you're, you're so closely watching the Facebook and the algorithm. I mean, nobody really knows what's in the algorithm. It's kind of unpredictable, I guess. But what kind of trends are you noticing? Anything changing recently? There's nothing really major changing right now. I know a lot of people are freaking out about the iOS 14 update that's coming out, but I don't personally think that that's a big deal. And if it does affect us in any way, I guarantee you we'll have a solution to it, like probably in 10 minutes. You know, like I'm not too worried about it. But yeah, no major changes with Facebook ads right now. I've already, you know, came out and said my opinions on how the algorithm works. I believe it's very momentum based and, you know, it's based on optimization. It's not really based on data anymore used to be, but, you know, I can go really in depth about, you know, crazy Facebook stuff that I've <laughs> discovered. You know, a lot of it is just on my channel, just me ranting about Facebook. And <laughs> other than iOS 14 update, I think that like, we're pretty much in scale mode right now. When you scale, you, you prefer to duplicate or do you also increase budgets? I think you always talk about duplicating more often, right? Because you don't want to mess up something that's working. I don't prefer to edit existing campaigns because I'd rather just leave them and, you know, let them work. Yeah, you do risk the new edit not working. And once you change it back, you're basically crossing your fingers and hoping it works the same. And I don't like doing that. But bring up a good point because Facebook actually just released a new policy where you can only have a maximum of 250 ads in your ad account. So this is kind of a concern. I feel like Facebook is not going to actually go through with this update, similar to what they did with the CBOs being required. But, you know, it has got us thinking a little bit, like maybe we should start tilting towards scaling budgets, but we haven't experimented with them a lot. And the experimenting that we did do did not do that well. Like I can say that right now, editing budget is a way of the past. Some people might still be able to make it work, but maybe it's just the way that I'm doing it. I don't know, but I definitely have not cracked that code. And also on CBO saying editing budgets haven't worked. CBO and ABO. Oh yeah, I've tried it on everything. I've tried every every single strategy that you know I'm aware of is you know doubling the budgets. I've tried increasing by a certain percentage every other day. Uh, I've tried doing every day. I've tried surfing, like some people call it budget surfing, where they'll change it, you know, midday and do all that. It's literally never worked out. I've seen it work a couple times, but mm-hmm. when I say it's never worked out, I mean I've never been able to actually replicate it and make it a strategy that works a lot of times. Yeah, I've also found that maybe at very small levels when you're testing, like going 5 to $15 would work. But I don't think more than that doesn't really... Duplicating and increasing budget to, is still something that we do a lot of, specifically with CBOs. But editing budgets, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, people are talking about, in terms of new products to test next year, 
Should you go with the one product store, general store? I also saw you had a video taking a take on this. What do you have to say about that debate? I know you're the belief uh, of those that say general stores still work. You know that you don't have to have the one product store, which is kind of like the fad right now. Right. What's your take? Yeah. So my opinion has changed quite a lot over the years. When I first got started, I started with general stores, and that was what I was about. And not that I'm changing my mind, but back then I was very, very stern on that. I was like, you know, general store is the only way you should do it. There's no other way. And, you know, I was honestly just saying that because to me, sticking to what's working is super important to me. Like, I don't want to change anything that's working because, you know, you're risking making yourself vulnerable to failure. You know, like once I already know something works, I want to stick to it. But, you know, throughout the years, I've scaled general stores plenty of times. I scaled niche stores plenty of times and I have scaled one product stores. And just recently we started messing around with gem pages. Gem pages is actually an app that allows you to make a general store product page look like a one product store. I'm open to any type of store. Honestly, this is my honest answer with my experience right now is it doesn't matter what kind of store you have. Any of them work. They all work. I scaled them all. But you don't see the one product working better in terms of scaling than the, no. the general? There's none that work better or worse. It's more about the product and how you run your ads. General stores still work just fine. Niche stores still work just fine. One product stores still work. The last issue I want to talk about is the apps. Because I know I talked with actually Mordechai, the founder of Hunt, about it. Because you had a similar opinion on this in terms of going really light on the apps or no apps or... You know, because a lot of people have the tendency, especially beginners that you're listening right now, you go crazy on the apps and then it just slows (laughs) down the store and like starts messing up and with your conversions. And what do you say about that? The most important thing, you know, whether it's a general niche or one product store or gem pages is keeping a smooth sales process because people have short attention spans. You know, if you start showing them all these buttons and pop-ups. And, you know, I just made a video showing all these different examples of distractions and you're just going to scare people away. The countdown timers, most of the time are fake. Like if you're using them real, like if you have a real limited time sale, then it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But if it's like a fake thing that's always running and it resets when you refresh the screen, I mean, that's just cheesy. And I think pre-purchase upsells are a nasty habit for online marketers. Yes, it does increase your AOV, but it could also decrease your conversion rate. So you need to keep track of that and make sure that that difference makes sense. Because anytime I've ever tried pre-purchase upsells, which is like upsells in the add to cart page or you know before they make the purchase, it's always decreased my conversion rate by more than what the average order value goes up. So yes, it does. It does work. It brings your AOV up, but it actually limited the amount of customers we got in the first place. Wow. That's interesting. And also it's just like, if you want somebody to buy a product, just sell them that product, you know, keep it as simple as possible and your store will work. You know, like you don't need to question if it's your store or not, if you have a good product. Well, with the post purchase upsell, that's better because then they're already through the, the cycle, right? Yeah, I'm not opposed to post-purchase upsells. I don't really do them myself a lot or with clients because it's kind of hard to manage all that with the pixel tracking. The biggest issue that I've had with post-purchase is sometimes it messes with the pixel. And if you do it, just make sure that 
if you are messing with the thank you page after a purchase so that it doesn't mess with your pixel because that is going to be your biggest enemy when you're doing post-purchase is you're messing with the page that people land on after they purchase. And landing there is how Facebook knows that they've made a purchase. So you can't mess with that page. That's a very interesting point. I haven't heard anyone talk about that. That's very good. A lot of people are, you know, getting into zip and all these like, you know, post-purchase upsells. And there's a good thing about it. But if it's going to mess with the conversions there, that's not good. There are things that you can do to make sure that that pixel stays the same. But, you know, just one thing that I'll do, like if I have a good winning product and the client wants to add upsells, I actually always encourage them to make a second Shopify account and basically make a replica of their store and whatever they were going to change, you know, change it on the replica first so that if anything does go wrong, it won't affect our ads in any way. That's interesting. Uh, in terms of bundles, you'd be, you'd be four bundles, right? Buying two or three or... Those are more than fine. Like you're talking about quantity breaks. Yeah, yeah. Those are great. Yeah, those are great for the average uh, AOV. Yeah. Well, I thank you for your time today. This was full of value. You guys might have to listen to this like two or three times. <laughs> Make sure you check out Noah's channel. The YouTube is going to be below. Like the